from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by Marshall University, with more than 100 degree programs offered in four locations and online. More about the Marshall family at marshall.edu. Good evening from the state capitol in Charleston. I'm Suzanne Higgins. On the legislature today, we begin a two-part series on West Virginia's energy sectors. Tonight, Brittany Patterson looks at the forecast for oil and natural gas production and includes the perspectives of environmentalists and private property owners. That's later in the program, but first, reporter Emily Allen joins me here at the set. Emily, good to have you here. Now, in House Judiciary Committee this morning, they passed out a large foster care bill that we've been following. It creates a database for foster care parents. It updates those out-of-state travel regulations. What else does it do? I think most noticeably, it really um, establishes a bill of rights for the parents, but also one for the actual foster care kids. And that's, you know, things like if it's possible to be placed with your siblings, you're placed with your siblings, respect for religious rights, you know, make sure the, the child's clothing fits right. So it really establishes that. Um, but overall, it's really just the bill is sweeping reforms that kind of address a lot of the concerns that lawmakers heard over the interim session. Now, this was inherited from the um, House Health Committee that had the, the bill first, um, there they increased the financial support given to foster families, and I know that was a very big concern. Yep, foster families and kinship caregivers, um, which are like, uh, you know, relatives either by blood or kind of fictive relationship that are in charge of the child. So an amendment from the lawmakers in the committee that actually did pass, and it passed the Judiciary Committee today, to um, it would raise kind of the monthly amount these caregivers get from $600 a month to $900 a month, about $30 a day. So obviously um, there were opponents to this uh, amendment in the Health Committee and the Judiciary this morning as well. The clip that we're going to hear right now is from Delegate Terry Waxman. I don't want people to turn to it as a money-making operation. The, the foster children have had enough trauma in their life. I want to ensure that they're they're in a system that works and with people that their most important um, thought is to how to help these children. So, um, you know, after we had talked there, this is obviously we had caught her after the committee session. Um, she mentioned that she would rather invest that money into the, the actual foster care system, like the child protective services, um, the kind of understaffed system they have there. You know, while you have opponents to this, though, there are obviously people that are in favor of raising it. Um, and so we did talk to you know some people that were more so in favor of raising that amount too, like Delegate Danielle Walker. When these children come into the homes, you have doctor's appointments, you have therapy appointments. There's an added cost. No one wants to get rich off of the quality of life of a child, but people do need a hand up. These are our children and there should be no price tag. 
So that cost amount was a really big part of it passing the Judiciary Committee today. They also made some amendments to the standards to which we hold our guardian ad litems, um, you know, the attorneys representing the children, but it did ultimately pass the Judiciary Committee and it's moving on to House Finance. All right, over in the Senate side today, uh, the introduction of a resolution supporting that repeal of the inventory tax on equipment and machinery on manufacturing. Now that sparked a very big debate, uh, 20, 15 to 20 minutes back and forth. Democrats wanting to make sure that uh, the, the counties are made whole with that money, that they won't be missing any of that money. Republicans saying there will be a plan worked out in committee. Um, so here's just a small sampling of what went back and forth today. First, we'll hear from Senator Mike Romano of Harrison County and then Senate Finance Chairman Craig Blair of Berkeley County. As a former county commissioner, I can assure you that if we eliminate the business personal property taxes with no replacement, with no replacement at all except our word that we're going to make it up from the general fund, which is about as good to the next budget crisis, we're going to bankrupt counties. According to the, the National Tax Foundation, we have the 17th lowest taxes overall, better than any of our surrounding states by 10 positions. And we have the 15th lowest business taxes in the country. For decades, we've been one of the cheapest places to do business in the country. I just want to say, as somebody who makes creating jobs and good jobs one of my quests in life to leave behind when I get out of this place, I've never had a business say, your tax structure is out of control, we're not coming. I believe it's a 20 to 30 year long overdue effort to be able to make it so that West Virginia can actually attract the manufacturing jobs and give the tax relief to our citizens where it's needed without hurting the counties. You want to stop the population loss in West Virginia? You want to stop the loss of our best and our brightest? We've got to be able to give them job opportunities. That resolution was sent to both the Senate Judiciary and Finance Committees. In 2019, oil and gas production was up in West Virginia, but severance collections were down, affected by low natural gas prices and the slowdown of pipeline projects. Meanwhile, state economic developers continue to push for expansion, especially in related downstream industries. In just a moment, reporter Brittany Patterson will speak with guests who have great concerns about that expansion, but first, her visit with West Virginia University students to learn about their views of the industry's future. At West Virginia University's Statler College of Engineering and Mineral Resources, the next generation of petroleum and natural gas engineers are hard at work. Okay, we have a, a very good program here, petroleum and natural gas engineering. Ilkin Bilgeser has taught at this program at WVU for almost 30 years. It's uh, one of the accredited programs throughout the U.S. That means we give at least minimum basics and we go beyond it. And we try to educate the students for the future. Generally, the students we spoke with are optimistic about their future prospects in the industry. There is not a better place to study it. 
Master's student Josh Dietz says having two of the most gas-rich regions, the Marcellus and Utica shale formations, in their backyard is a great asset for WVU students. So we're better to learn it than actually right here, having companies that want to sponsor this technology and actually figuring out how and what we can do in the industry to better it. Um, this region is just on top of the Marcellus, like the university has property in the Marcellus, so that's big for us. The Marcellus has been big for the state of West Virginia's coffers, too. We saw explosive growth for four years in a row. When the gas boom really started in West Virginia, we saw output growth of more than 40% per year for four years in a row. Tremendous, tremendous growth. John Deskins directs WVU's Bureau of Business and Economic Research. He says after a little dip in production in 2019, the gas industry rebounded. Over the past year, growth has been more than 20%, and we expect healthy growth for some time. So uh, output growth is, still, is strong and is expected to continue to be strong. According to the state tax department, in 2019, the state received $146 million in severance taxes from natural gas. Officials estimate in 2020, collections will be $98 million. But Deskin says other parts of the industry, namely the construction of natural gas pipelines, have slowed. That is one reason the state has so far missed fiscal 2020 budget projections. Uh, the fact that the pipeline jobs are, in some sense, already drying up in some parts of West Virginia, uh, that's part of the issue. Deskins also says while natural gas jobs are well-paying, the industry doesn't create as many as you might think. And job growth is isolated to about eight counties, largely in the northern part of the state. We're not talking about vast numbers. We're talking about a few thousand. Uh, we're not talking about, you know, tens of thousands of jobs. Still, shale gas production has increased rapidly in the Appalachian Basin since 2012. The gas produced here is rich in natural gas liquids like ethane, which is a feedstock for plastics and chemicals. Luring those chemical manufacturers and other downstream industries to West Virginia has been a major priority of state officials, including Governor Jim Justice. In August, Justice signed an executive order creating a task force aimed at expansion of the petrochemical industry. Here he is speaking at the West Virginia Chamber of Commerce Business Summit. When this wave hits, absolutely. West Virginia will really go. Supporters of turning West Virginia into the next petrochemical hub say the industry could bring thousands of jobs and billions in tax revenue. But environmental groups fear the development will turn Appalachia into the next cancer alley. And it would create more plastic at a time when the Earth's oceans are choked with it, as well as set the world back in the fight against climate change. Some students in WVU's Petroleum and Natural Gas Engineering program are eager to try and balance the growing environmental concerns over fossil fuels like natural gas with the reality that it currently generates more than one-third of all electricity in the U.S. Senior Morgan Measures says while the technology behind renewable energies like wind and solar has advanced, others like battery storage are still relatively new. I don't think it's one or the other, and I think that's um, again, the balance of that is very important, that you, we are able to balance it. It's just knowing where things are going to be better implemented and where, like, something that works very, very well for renewable might not work for natural gas and vice versa. Junior Anrak Shrestha says becoming an engineer in this field may give him an opportunity to reduce emissions in the natural gas industry. As an engineer, I feel like I should help um, optimize our oil industry, our energy sustenance capabilities. So I do definitely want to start uh, working. As for 2020, 
a global glut of natural gas is expected to slow production around the world, including here in West Virginia. In December, oil and gas giant Chevron announced plans to write down 10 to $11 billion in assets, mostly shale gas holdings in Appalachia. For the legislature today, I'm Brittany Patterson. And joining me now in studio, Angie Rosser, Executive Director of West Virginia Rivers Coalition, and Dave McMahon of the West Virginia Surface Owners' Rights Organization. Thank you both for being here this evening. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Angie, I want to start with you. Um, what are some of your I the issues that you're watching here related to natural, natural gas development? Well, holistically, as was in your lead-in, um, the industry is developing rapidly. And we want to make sure that we are prepared for that and handling that responsibly. So we're looking at making sure our regulatory frameworks are adequate, that there are resources to enforce those regulations, and that we're thinking about the cumulative effects of this development on the environment, on human health, and on climate change, as, as was mentioned. Secondly, we've had a lot of, of attention on pipelines. Um, past two years, we've seen some major pipeline development that has crisscrossed our state, affected a lot of communities, and unfortunately have seen violations, have seen damage to our water supplies. So we have a bill that is prepared to be introduced to look at how to hold pipeline count uh, companies accountable for those violations, especially when they're happening on a chronic and repeated basis. And finally, uh, what are we, six years after the 2014 uh, water crisis here in West Virginia where we established uh, the Above Ground Storage Tank Act. Um, yet again this year we're seeing the oil and gas industry uh, attempt to exempt themselves from, from that, that uh, regulation. Um, and what's most concerning from our, from our standpoint is the bill introduced in the House exempts tanks that are, are the worst performing and that are the closest to our public drinking water intakes. Yeah, really important issues, and we'll get back to that storage tank bill. Dave, I want to turn to you for a minute. Um, it's my understanding that there's one issue that your organization has been especially focused on, and that's getting orphan wells plugged. What's the scope of the problem? What's going on? Well, what we've been really concerned about before now is, the, is that the industry has a right to use the surface to get to the minerals underneath the surface tract, but they've been using someone's surface for those, these huge uh, pads that last a long time to drill not only into the pad underneath, into the tract underneath, but a mile or two in either direction. And fortunately, the West Virginia Supreme Court has said, we're right, uh, they don't need to do that, and if any viewers out there had that done on them, they might want to go to our website. Um, but the, So now the issue is what we call the most, we think the most widespread property rights and environmental problem in West Virginia, which is orphan unplugged oil and gas wells. Um, we know that there are 4,500 that have been unplugged for so long that the driller went out of business and there's nobody to plug them. There's another 8,000 where the drillers should already have plugged them, uh, but they haven't plugged them yet. And we think there'll be another 10,000 that'll be orphaned in a couple years from now. So it's a huge problem. Yeah, I actually think we have some photos of some of these wells. So these were some photos that I actually took on um, William Suon's property in sort of northwestern West Virginia. Wells just on his property that had been um, left there, and these are some that you provided as well. Um, I understand that the legislature is once again taking up bills that might address this issue. Um, tell us a little bit about what's on the table. Well, there are there, there's, there's money to plug existing orphan wells, and then we also need 
need legislation to prevent future wells from happening, uh, from being orphaned. Um, there are three bills. One is a severance tax bill. And the industry has not been responsible in plugging these wells. They're coming around a little bit. Uh, there, there's a bill that will cut the severance tax from, for certain low-producing vertical wells uh, from 5% to 2.5% and put that towards plugging wells, orphaned wells. That may plug 30 a year. There's another bill that will let the horizontal drillers get an expedited permit. And depending on how many of them use the expedited permit, pay the extra uh, $20,000 or $10,000, um, that will plug a few more wells. And then we have a bill for missing and unknown owners, some of their money is sitting out there in the circuit clerk's office, uh, and we think that money should be used uh, to plug wells, because um, some of that money would go to surface owners above horizontal wells but who aren't affected at all, so we think some of that money should go to plug orphan wells on people who have been hurt in the past. Yeah, yeah, I know that that severance tax bill um, passed last year and was vetoed by the governor and now it's coming through again. And I think that that estimates, you know, 50 to 60 wells might be plugged with the money that can be collected under that piece of legislation. Um, certainly that's not nothing, but is that enough given the scope of the problem? Well, it certainly is. And I call it, you know, you put a dent in the bucket of orphan wells. Uh, the real problem is there's a hole in the bucket because there's nothing to prevent future wells from becoming orphan. The current blanket bonding, $50,000 bond for these wells, no matter how many a driller owns, can be, you know, $25 a, a well. And the transfer, this happened recently, a bunch of the big horizontal drillers transferred their conventional wells to a company called Diversified, who has put disclosures that shows in 15 years these wells will not be profitable and, and there'll be uh, about 10,000 in West Virginia that still need to be plugged and they're not making enough money even to produce themselves. Yeah, and these are sitting on landowners' properties and, and potentially leaking dangerous things into the water or the atmosphere. Angie, I want to turn back to you and back to this above-ground oil and gas storage tank bill. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's House Bill 4079. Um, give us some background here. What are these tanks? What are some of the risks associated with them? Well, this bill, House Bill 4079, would exempt approximately 620 tanks that are located in what are called zones of critical concern. And those zones of critical concern were created knowing that that is when, um, if a contaminant is released, it will reach a drinking water intake very quickly. So the risk is very high um, and it's hard to respond um, in time, um, like we saw here in, in Charleston with the Freedom Industries tanks being so close to that intake. So we have never seen this move before by the legislature um, to just to, to remove regulations and protections from tanks sitting on top of, of drinking water intakes. The, the other th concerning thing about this bill especially is when you look at the track record of these oil and gas tanks. They're smaller tanks, they're usually older, um, and they're aging. And of those 620 tanks I mentioned, right now 153 of those have been determined unfit for service. So one in four of these tanks are should not be even be used right now, let alone exempt from regulation. And last year when we look back at the number of tanks that were um, released contaminants, 70% of those releases these oil and gas tanks were the culprit. Wow, yeah. Um, I want to bring a couple more photos up, um, Angie, that you provided us, and they sort of speak to some other issues that I know are top of mind. All what right. are we looking at here? <laughs> we are looking at the um, MXP pipeline, Mountaineer Express pipeline, and that is Fish Creek up in Marshall County. 
Um, and this is typical of what we, we get most concerned about, where you can actually see that brown plume of sediment, that muddy mud coming off of the right away of the pipeline. That is what we're supposed to be avoiding. We, that is a violation of water quality standards to see that much mud in a stream that affects aquatic life and the water quality there. Yeah. Uh, another example, I think this was a citizen's. Right, this was part of our citizen's oversight program. We have folks out there in the community taking photos. This is in Braxton County. Again, this muddy mud, stream should not be muddy like this. You can see where the fencing has, has failed to contain the sediment. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one thing that we heard in my piece a few minutes ago is really the role that the natural gas pipelines have, have played in, in jobs and bringing construction jobs to the state and bringing tax dollars to, to counties and the state coffers. Um, but it sounds like there are some also some other major concerns on the environmental side of things. What have we seen um, over the past few years as we've seen pipeline construction ramp up? Well, in our view, we have not seen pipeline companies do the best job they can in protecting our water and protecting our communities. And our, our challenge to this legislature is to step up and adjust our penalty scales so that when a violation occurs, it's actually a deterrent to future violations. Some of these companies were seeing upwards of 40 into 50 violations so that the, the penalties just aren't doing their job in terms of, of uh, you know, deterring repeat violations like this we're seeing. So that that's a concern. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, speaking of deterrence and enforcement, one thing I wanted to talk to both of you about this evening is, you know, I've been hearing some concern from some lawmakers about broadly about how DEP, the State Department of Environmental Protection, is able to enforce oil and gas operations, whether that's pipeline construction, whether that's what's going on with oil and gas rigs. Um, and my understanding is that enforcement is almost entirely, if not fully funded, by permit fees paid by the industry. So you see a downturn in the industry then you've got a problem as far as what DEP is collecting. Um, you know, earlier this year I spent some time speaking with citizens who were on their weekends going out and walking the pipeline routes, coming up with citizen inspections and sending that to DEP. And, and their thought was, this is a problem with enforcement. There are not enough inspectors out there. Um, how, how does enforcement sit with you, you guys and your organizations? And is there a solution here? Well, with, with, with respect to oil and gas enforcement, these are the, the pads and those kinds of things, which is sometimes different than the pipeline enforcement. Um, the, the problem is that they, and this is across the board at DEP, really, that, that enforcement is funded by permit fees that the legislature establishes for the, for the companies. And so, of course, they have an incentive to keep the fees low and not get enforcement done. Um, you know, the, the oil and gas paid 140, did you say, million? dollars in, in, in um, severance taxes last year, only 300,000 of that goes to the Office of Oil and Gas. Now, they get another three million, or last year they did, from permit fees, but that's gonna go down. So we need more enforcement. We need um, oil and gas inspectors that are more independent. Right now they have to work in the industry before they get the job. Um, and right now they can't bring a fine without going to circuit court like the rest, like the rest of DEP. So we have real enforcement concerns um, and we think that there is the money to do it. You know, there's enough money with, with the Marcellus shale and these other shales to do it right this time and not make the same mistakes Western Union made with coal. 
Yeah. Angie, anything you want to add to that? Well, Dave's right on all points. I mean, enforcement is where the rubber hits the road. We can make the best laws coming out of this body, but if they're not enforced, they're meaningless. Um, so unless we put the resources and the commitment to enforcement, that's how we protect our water and our people. Uh, we've learned uh, just this session that DEP is losing uh, $1.2 million out of its oil and gas program annually. So they're having to pull from other important programs uh, to fill that hole. And that should not be happening when we're hearing about the success and the productivity of this oil and gas industry in West Virginia. Yeah. In the few minutes that we have left, I want to pivot to one more issue top of mind when it comes to oil and gas development, and that is the real push by state officials to create the next sort of use for our natural gas, and specifically natural gas liquids. I think we have a couple more photos. Yeah, so this is a photo of the shell cracker plant in Manaka, Pennsylvania, I believe. That's right. That's right, and we're hearing a lot about cracker plants and what we can do to bring those to West Virginia. You know, what these images show me is the scale of this industrialization, and we're talking about focusing it around the Ohio River, which is already has a lot of industrialization happen. So again, what I mentioned about the cumulative effect of this industrialization, the waste it creates, and as you mentioned, with down, downstream manufacturing, we're talking about plastics, we're talking about um, climate effects, and I think as a state, we're part of a national conversation about what does our future look like in terms of energy production and plastic use. It's, I mean, we're, we're in the middle of all that right now. Yeah, I think quickly, you know, supporters would say potential jobs, uh, potential economic boom to the state, but it sounds like there are some real environmental concerns that need to be worked out and, and rights concerns, because this won't just be the cracker plants, it'll be more production, it'll be more pipelines that'll affect surface owners as well. Well, we have to leave it there. Thank you both to Angie and Dave. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Brittany. Thank you Good very to much. talk to you. Tomorrow on the legislature today, a forecast on West Virginia coal production and a conversation with members of the House Energy Committee. I'm Brittany Patterson. For everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, thanks for joining us and have a great evening.